Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR161 Y45, Hispanic America, Tree of Hate. From the Easy Chair, excellent colloquies on various subjects. This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair number 147, May 26, 1987. This evening, Otto Scott and I are happy to have with us Dr. Philip Wayne Powell, a University of California historian. Ross House Books has brought out his Tree of Hate, and you can get it from Ross House Books for $20. Now, the importance of Dr. Powell's work is that he has destroyed some of the historical myths that have had so powerful an influence. We fail to realize how much of what passes for history is really propaganda. I'd like to cite a couple of examples before we give the evening to uh, Dr. Powell's work. Jeffrey Burton Russell a few years ago wrote on witchcraft in the Middle Ages and came to the rather reluctant but frightened conclusion that the witch cult was a very real menace that it involved human sacrifice, cannibalism, homosexuality, and a great deal more. And that had they not dealt with it, civilization would have been destroyed. Again, I have in my hand some articles by a Kent State University professor, historian Jerome Friedman, on Servetus and how the whole of our history with regard to Calvin has been dramatically altered. Well, what uh, Dr. Powell has to uh, tell us is something very far-reaching, very important to us, because, as he will tell us in a minute or two, a very, very important and much neglected and by a fast portion of the world is Hispanic. And we have all kinds of false assumptions about that portion of the world. And it is a serious mistake for us to misunderstand it, to misrepresent it, and not to recognize its contributions to the world and to the future of our history. Phil, it's a pleasure to have you here. Would you like to describe very briefly what the Tree of Hate is about and its thesis, and then just whatever else you want to say? Tree of Hate is a book uh, that grew out of quite a few years of uh, teaching in the field of Hispanic history, Iberian and Latin American. And uh, finally, a realization that every year I was going over the same material every year to try to explain why we thought had so many mistaken views about the Hispanic world. The conquest in America is, is, is loaded with, with errors of this sort, brought on by uh, uh, English, uh, English and French and Dutch uh, and German-speaking people in the northern part of Europe who inherited a, from out of the, particularly the 15th and 16th centuries, a and the religious wars, a tremendous amount of misinformation and uh, prejudice and propagandas which produced the prejudices. 
uh, into our whole view of the, the Hispanic world. And it begins, it's very heavily related to the Spanish conquest in America, where we have such such uh, mistaken ideas as that Cortez conquered Mexico with the sword. It was, it was a conquest of diplomacy, far more than the sword. This is a common error. But uh, we like to think of uh, the uh, Spaniards in there killing off Indians, uh, the sword right and left, uh, it gives us a kind of superior feeling because we supposedly uh, didn't do this kind of thing, or it was, it was, it was uh, rather uncivilized, <laughs> barbar barbarous behavior. And especially, of course, when done by Catholics. I mean, in the, in the days of the 16th century, <laughs> uh, the, the Catholics were the enemy to, to so many of the English, as you all know from your reading of history, and the Dutch, uh, the, the famous. Uh, writings on Dutch history, Motley, and so forth, paint these Spaniards in very, very black terms, of course, and the uh, William of Orange in, uh, is, is virtually a saint. And all of this builds up. We inherited it in this country. We inherited this kind of what uh, I often refer to, and others do too, as the Nordic superiority complex, or the Nordic complex. Madariaga, one of the Spanish, great Spanish thinkers, philosophers and writers, uh, whimsically referred to this as the, due to the fact that the maps are hung with the north up and the south down. And, uh, I mean, this is, <laughs> this is just fun with it, but it's a, it's a tremendous influence in anyone who faces year after year university students coming into the university with this tremendous batch of prejudices growing out of the British Isles past and the North European past uh, and cultivated after all our beginnings were in the, 19th, the 18th century particularly at a time when the Enlightenment was was uh, re redoing the Spanish crusade to help the Indian the, Bartolo, the Bartolome de las Casas the Spanish bishop who is so famous but there were many many other Spaniards and bishops and churchmen who were even more uh, effective than Las Casas, but he gets the reputation uh, in our world particularly because his terrible description of the Spanish conquest of America, an indictment of his people that uh, is almost incredible, something like some of our Americans do today with regard to the United States, taken up and used in Russia or wherever. Well, the North Europeans, the French, uh, English, Jews, and Dutch and Italians, those who had some reason to be anti-Spanish, for some reason or another, they all had some gripe against some of Spain. Spain was at the top, top dog, 16th century. They took up Las Casas, after all, he's a Spaniard, he must know what he's talking about. It's like today uh, in our schools or any place, if you want to know something about Mexico, you ask a Mexican, of course, but, the, but it doesn't work that way. <laughs> Mexicans know their history very badly, as a matter of fact. But the mere fact the person is a Mexican, and the mere fact that Bartolomé de las Casas was a was a, a Spanish bishop and had been in the New World and so forth, then it became uh, it became almost an automatic reflex. And he he was the great hero of the defense of the Indian, unfairly so, but. Uh, 
anyway, this this is the kind of thing that the propagandas of the religious wars and so forth have built up to uh, tell us about the Hispanic world. Well, when I was, um, if I may interject, uh, and then Otto, uh, we'll hear from you. When I was a student at the university, all I learned about Latin American history had one source, Las Casas. And as you commented, I think it's ironic that uh, all we have is the liberal critique of Spain, which warped history, and now we're suffering from the same thing because our liberals are giving the world a false perspective on the United States. And in both instances, it's the leading world power that is being critiqued by its own people, and the world is ready to believe anything about that power. Otto, you wanted to say something. Well, probably the destruction of the Spanish reputation internationally was the first time that that had been achieved in modern times. Now, I recall as recently as about three years ago having a man in the overseas press club ask me if I didn't remember the Inquisition. <laughs> and Solzhenitsyn mentioned the fact that there are more people die of... Uh, violently in Detroit every year than the Inquisition killed in all its history. Yes. And yet the Inquisition has been held up for 400 years as a, the epitome of persecution and so forth, with very little reference to the fact that many of the leaders of the Inquisition were converted Jews. And it was a really very complicated problem. But in this century we have seen the destruction, you might say, of the German people in terms of reputation because of the Holocaust, and the destruction of the American people since mm -hmm. World War II. Now, what we've done to deserve all this, I don't know, but the Hollywood movies, the, the uh, I, I've turned on shortwave radio and I've listened to the New York Times being read aloud without change <laughs> by the commentators from Moscow as an evidence of our decadence. But, of course, since my father was born and raised in Latin America, and I have many relatives there, the indifference of the United States to the peoples in the South has amazed me. In 1936, you remember when President Cardenas was killing priests and nuns in Mexico? A little bit earlier, but it's earlier. in the early 30s. In the early 30s, early 30s yes. yes. There were, I don't know how many were slaughtered. Mm -hmm. Nobody in the United States paid any attention. Well, something is tr like that about the Civil War is true, too. Very the Spanish Civil War. Uh, the Spanish Civil War in the 1930s, very few people understand that there were two sides to the war. Yes. Because we are automatically prejudiced against the religious and military of the Hispanic world. We don't know them. Commonly, we just uh, don't know them at all and what they're role is, their institutional role, and their, their record and everything else. But getting back to what uh, Otto mentioned a moment ago, uh, I refer to the uh, Hispanophobic uh, complex in our society today, in the Western world generally, to the first great success, the first successful propaganda campaign in modern history. And the summit powers, like Spain in the 16th century, and the United States in the 20th, 
uh, are particularly vulnerable to this kind of attack. Yeah. And Spain was, and the propaganda against Spain, because of its summit power status, is the first great, the first global uh, power. Uh, was uh, was tremendous, and I advise in my book that we look upon Spain as an example of what's happening to us today. Yes, very interesting. I've been looking into that a little bit. Vivas, mm -hmm. I believe it was, talking about one of the reasons why Spain collapsed economically when the flow of gold and silver began to fall off from the New World that the Spanish spent so much of their uh, their money in building churches and schools, mm -hmm. neither of which were productive in a material sense, and then buying all their goods from the manufacturers of Europe. They didn't set up any factories. It was They said, we have the money, why should we bother? We can get the goods just by paying for them. And here we are, following the same pattern. We've got more schools than any country in the history of the world, less educated kids, <laughs> but more buildings, and we've got, uh, this, this evening for my birthday cake, my wife had bought a, a flan base, a dollar and a half, it came from West Germany. I said, you mean to say we have no bakeries? <laughs> she said, well, they don't bake this sort of thing over here anymore. And, but you're right, it's the Spanish example that we should be studying. Yes, I insist that uh, we, instead of studying the, the decline and fall of Rome, uh, we ought to be studying the decline and fall of the Spanish Empire. Well, however, there's one, I just thought as you were talking of one little, uh, I'll put a little sour note in here. The Spanish Empire was bankrupt practically all the way, but it maintained a great global empire and uh, it didn't maintain its reputation. You see, that went. Uh, but it, even with bankruptcy, they they held this. They held their colors. Uh, they held the empire, and that was due to mainly one thing that most uh, uh, most uh, don't recognize: loyalty to the monarch. Loyalty the to the monarch. The thing that was derided by the 18th century Enlightenment. They laughed at the Spaniards for being loyal to their monarch. But it was loyalty to the monarchy, poor as it was at times, that held the whole thing together. And once the monarchy was gone, look at it today. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. Your book on uh, Mexico's Miguel Caldera, The Taming of America's First Frontier, 1548 to 1597, is another case in point. It's uh, quite a vivid account of uh, the conflict the men on the field had with the politicians and the liberals at home who had no recognition of the realities of uh, what was happening out in Mexico. There was an early version of what happened in the, in the United States, too, where the people in the eastern seaboard, who managed the country since its beginnings anyway, uh, managed to get they, they would discuss the Indian somewhat like the court of Madrid would in Spain in the 16th century as a kind of distant uh, abstraction that we, oh, it must be, and, and Las Casas, Las Casas, the defender of the Indian, so-called, and all that, 
as he was, really. Uh, it, the the whole um, uh, legislative process, the, the management process of the empire in America was based on Las Casian ideas more than any others. Well, the word liberal comes from Spain. Mm. Oh, yes. Yes, and the fact they very nearly invented it <laughs> in, the, in the late, uh, early 19th century. About ten years ago, you'll be interested in this, I was canceled out at one Western University because in speaking to the law school, I was talking about the change in language since I was dealing with problems related to law mm -hmm. and uh, how uh, words come from uh, a particular situation. And I cited farmer, which once meant tax collector, and I said our word cannibal doesn't uh, uh, speak of the Americas to us, but its origin was caribou because it was among the Caribs that they first encountered the eating of human flesh. Well, the whole university was in a turmoil for days over that. I can understand it. <laughs> and their attitude was, how dare I say anything like that? Even though it was in the process of defining words. Because given the record of the white man, how dare a white man speak unkindly of Indians in any frame of reference. That's really amazing. Only the white race eliminated slavery. Yeah. No other race ever did anything against slavery. Only the white race brought in men of other races and made them equal in our culture. No black man or black tribe has ever made another black tribesman equal in his tribe. And no Oriental has ever done that. And in today's Israel, there are three or four different classes of society. So, <laughs> and yet, the Caucasians get loaded with all this nonsense from races that have never indulged in any of the things, any of the privileges that they demand as a right. Christianity is being called bigoted and intolerant when it's the only worldwide religion that has taken in people of all colors, races, and everything else. It's really astonishing. And nothing said about the fact that uh, every year 330,000 Christians are verifiably known to have been martyred for their faith. And the number is growing. Now that's the major holocaust of this century. Oh, yes. But uh, what do you read about it? Well, it all adds up, I guess, to the fact that you have to, you can't check your brain. You can't let the world tell you what you're supposed to know, because if you do, you're the world number one patsy. Will Rogers used to say, you know, imitating an idiot, all I know is what I read in the newspapers. Well, if he were alive today, he'd say, all I know is what I see on TV. And the tree of hate, uh, when I ran across a copy, I ran across a second-hand copy of the Strand Bookstore in New York. I thought so highly of it, I Xeroxed copies and sent them around to friends because I couldn't find any anywhere else. And I thought, of course, that I knew something uh, about the nature of anti-South American prejudice. My father used to talk about it all the time. He'd go to Wall Street to try to sell Venezuelan bonds, and they'd been telling him about the default of Latin Americans in 
1929 and all that. And he said, in the meantime, the Canadians have been stealing them blind, year <laughs> in, year out, and they've never said a word. But I'm del- I was delighted to see this book back into print, and I'm astonished at the general slow sale, because this, especially at a time when we're faced with an influx from Mexico and from Central America now through Mexico, you would think that more Americans would take the time to look into who these people are and where they come from. I would especially like to see that book uh, read in Washington, D.C., where our relationships with Latin America are manufactured now by more overnight experts on Latin America than you can shake a stick at. And they are practically all of the left persuasion. Uh, I mean, liberal or liberal left. Well, right now there are about seven to eight hundred Americans in Nicaragua helping the communist government. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. We're listening to the senators and the representatives abusing people who have tried to help the uh, anti-communist forces in Nicaragua. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting that uh, when they found out what was in this book, the publisher and the original printing uh, killed the book. In effect, that's what it amounted to. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, we had a terrible time getting the, the rights to reprint. Yeah. I had to threaten basic mm-hmm. books Lloyd Legal Department. Yes. Uh, they held you off for how long? Oh, a long time. So five or six years, anyway. Mm-hmm. They just wouldn't even answer. And I even paid personal visits to the place to talk with them about it and got promises that I'd get the copyright in, what, six weeks or whatever. Mm-hmm. Never happened year after year. They don't want the truth to be uh, publicized. The truth hurts. Yes. <laughs> well, I'm... From time to time, I've been introduced as a historian, and I always correct the people and say I'm not a historian, I'm a writer. Mm-hmm. A historian is somebody that goes down and blows the dust off old parchment and manuscripts and translates antique language into the modern idiom and so forth. You're a historian. I'm not. Well, I like to think I'm a writer, too. Well, you're a writer. And I gave up calling myself a historian some time ago, partly for that reason, the the reasons that you're mentioning here. Mm -hmm. Uh, The historians of my time in the academic world, the United States, uh, are are not really historians. They have become, to a great extent, ideologues. All right. On the Miguel Caldera book, mm-hmm. you had to go into the archives in Mexico City. I dusted off quite a few of them. It wasn't just dust that was on top of those documents either. I found, I found archives and odds and ends of places all over Mexico. I enjoyed every minute of it. Adventure in archives. A mar- marvelous book. And the Tree of Hate. Yes. But did you have to go into the archives of the Tree of Hate also? Yes. I went into uh, uh, the archives of Holland. Mm-hmm. And uh, in England, mm-hmm. uh, and um, oh, among other things, I was I, I was in the archives of the uh, uh, the Rosenthal collection in the University of Amsterdam because there were many many Jews centered in Amsterdam in the 16th and 17th century. Yes, they went there. Yeah, fled, they fled Iberia for Amsterdam. It was part of the Spanish Empire, but a part that uh, mm-hmm. that they thought they could sort of survive survive a little better in. 
and uh, also one of the synagogue uh, archives in uh, in uh, in The Hague. I worked there. So I've worked in a, a lot of places for the Tree of Hate book as well as the Caldera book, and uh, and uh, uh, while it is not the same kind of uh, documentary research that the Caldera book is, which uh, I think uh, Mexicans in this country particularly ought to know, it's where most of their ancestors come from, the and they're very heroic ancestors, a lot of them are, they make... Uh, Daniel Boone and David Crockett look uh, look a little sick by comparison. <laughs> I haven't found any Hispanic who's heard of Caldera. No, he, he, partly because he's a he's a mixed blood. Mm-hmm. They still have that. Yes, well, in his own time, it could be noticed mm-hmm. already that uh, he was the only frontier captain on North America's first frontier. The only frontier captain was born in the wilderness. And uh, and became a hero with his father's people uh, fighting against the people that his mother came from. Mm-hmm. Now we have a few cases of that uh, on our own frontier, but they're sort of they were they're sort of minor by comparison. This man uh, shaped yes, he did. much of much of the development the of peace a, policy. And the, the policy the that was pursued after that was the policy that he innovated. Yes. Mm-hmm. So he's a very important historical figure, which... Mexicans don't know him either. Well, Mexicans don't know their history. <laughs> That's uh, right. The Mexicans today have the only communist constitution, the first communist constitution ever created, even before the one in the Bolsheviks. Well, yeah, I, I yeah. guess that was about the same time, anyway. The thing that uh, struck me so forcibly in the Caldera book was that... Uh, it was like reading today's papers. The mythology uh, with which people uh, surround events. Oh, yes. How they couldn't face up to the fact of what was happening in their world and refuse to uh, recognize the reality and therefore caused no end of trouble for Caldera and the colonists. Well, it's like our foreign policy today. The same liberal presuppositions destroying things. Oh, yes. Now, this frontier was the great opening into the heartland of North America. And even today, Mexican historians know very little about it and care less. They're all concerned about the Valley of Anahuac, or Mexico City and environs and so forth and so on. They're, they're perishing in the smog, in their own smog, but still they, they concentrate their history. In that area, and maybe they go as far west as Guadalajara, reluctantly. At a conference a few years back, and I read uh, one of the copies of the original printing some years ago, mm-hmm. I uh, mentioned the thesis here to a Latin American who was in politics, and he was furious. Period. He had never heard of any such thing. Who invented that kind of uh, nonsense? Really? Yes. yes. Not invented here, huh? Oh, well, they had to have the theme of oppression. It gave oh, them yes. a, a, oh, yeah. a political uh, ploy. Sure. Oh, no, you don't, you don't find any sympathy towards, uh, towards Spain in a lot of Latin America today. And, in fact, the, the more Indian the country, the worse it is. It's really racist in a certain sense. Anyway, white. Yes. Well, this man was insistent on uh, 
the black legend and how the Spanish had uh, uh, enslaved our people and raped our women and he went on and on emotionally and the about cities that. and the cathedrals and the, and the colleges notwithstanding didn't mention the Indians that helped the Spaniards conquer the other Indians yes <laughs> They didn't like being eaten in some cases. Well, you know, the, the numbers of allies of Cortez, Indian allies, uh, raping and running around in Mexico City after the fall of the Aztecs, uh, nobody, I don't think, has ever... No. Nobody's ever taken notice of that. No, no. You never sure see it. Never see Any it. more than they take notice of the barbarities of black Africa mm. today. No. no, not today. Well, we have a problem today because we are at the most critical time in history. Never before has there been a world crisis, I believe, equal to ours. And important, as you've often said, Phil, to our future is to have the right kind of ties with Latin America. We have far more in common than we do with almost any other part of the world, beginning simply with Christianity itself. Yes. Well, there is that. There is also the fact that if we had good relations with the Southern Hemisphere and with Central America, the whole West could endure without Europe, without Asia, without Africa. But if we are divided as a hemisphere, we will not be able to endure. Of course, you know who's interested in dividing us. Yes. And they're actively at work in Washington, particularly, and going southward. Phil, as we continue, I think we ought to look at the contemporary scene and the question of uh, relations with Hispanic America on the part of the United States. This is an area where most Americans have viewed the situation with indifference and have failed to show the interest that uh, is, I think, necessary for the welfare of this country. Yes, uh, much of this condescension on the part of the United States with regard to the Latin American world uh, originates in what we were talking about before, the, the Hispanophobic content of so much of our history which causes us then to have this kind of a superior air about us. Uh, it's a kind of a, uh, well, I don't know what you'd call it, but anyway, what it results in is this. We haven't had a respectable policy with regard to Latin America in the 20th century, and very particularly in the, air, the time when we should have really begun it, we only did it in a very juvenile fashion and incompletely. That was the so-called Roosevelt good neighbor policy, which uh, had its roots earlier, but uh, FDR gets the gets the fame of it. And uh, it was that was abandoned uh, as World War II came to an end. We were uh, we were uh, thinking in terms of what's left of us if Europe goes down. And we're in the 1930s, we began to be rather scared. I can remember being very scared, the Hitler-Stalin pact and so forth. But even before that, it was recognizable that we would need Latin America for the oncoming struggle. It was, and that's why the good neighbor policy really originated. 
and why it was so quickly abandoned because it was never very it didn't have real depth it did among the United uh, people of this country but the government though which was started out to be the leader ended up uh, abandoning it with the end of the war and the turning towards Europe and the other problems of the world and so forth and so on we moved back to our indifference with regard to Latin America had we had I cite this as an example had we had in place a real Latin American policy when Reagan come in, came into office there wouldn't have been a Falklands War for example had we had first class diplomats and a personnel worthy of the job in Latin America this would have been would have been forestalled by positive event but there are so many other things that uh, uh, show up for example the naming of people to high positions in Latin America the highest one we've got is assistant secretary for Latin America which isn't very high uh, but still it's the highest and the people who get appointed to the, that post regularly are those who don't know anything about Latin America once in a while there's an exception to this Care very little about it, and uh, and uh, the Reagan administration is doing the same thing the Kennedy administration did in that regard, pointing overnight experts fresh out of Harvard Law School or someplace like that. Don't know the languages, don't know the people. Some of them never been in the area, and these are the ones who lead our Latin American policy. Well, I think a couple of classical examples of stupidity. Uh, one was sending a woman down to Latin America to represent us a few years back. I believe was Claire Booth loose? No, Mrs. no, she was in Italy. No, Mrs. Uh, Carter. No. Mrs. Carter, yes. Now that was not Amy. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> Amy wasn't old enough for she would have been. So she would have been. That was not taken uh, no, no. kindly. And Otto, the question of height. Perhaps you could tell that mm-hmm. story, yes. which I yes. think is really when Perez incredible. Perez Jimenez was dictator of Venezuela, five foot four, I believe, mm-hmm. and we sent down an ambassador that was six foot four. <laughs> well, we we had in charge of our Latin American policy, Assistant Secretary of State for Latin America, not so long ago under the Reagan administration, a man who was six foot eight. Oh for Latin America. Can you imagine a gathering of the United States and Latin America in Washington, D.C., the Organization of American States, and hear this fellow <laughs> talking to them? <laughs> well, I recall being told in an American school when I was a boy that the Spaniards were poor colonists. And I asked why they'd lasted 400 years of their colonies and was sent out of the room for impertinence. Mm-hmm. There's also the idea that the Catholic Church in Latin America is an evil institution in the past, when it was the only institution that achieved spiritual equality for all the people of Latin America. The Indians worshipped in the same church as the plantation owner. And in almost every respect, we seem to know more about Czechoslovakia, France, Germany, or any other country than we do about any country nearby. I mentioned the massacres, the anti-Christian massacres in Mexico in the 30s. Mm-hmm. Most Americans have never heard of it. No, no, no. Yes. They've never heard of it. No, that's true. And yet it was right next door. They don't yes. even know that the Catholic Church is still officially outlawed in Mexico. Mm-hmm. 
And the tourists that go there go in and out all the time. Now, there's really very little excuse for ignorance if you can read and write and have a pair of eyes. That's true. Uh, the idea that we sh the Americans now seem to have developed that they should be told all these things. And of course the, the information is available. I mean, your tree of hate will bring them up to date. If you read that one book, they would know more about Latin America than most of the uh, people that the USIA sends down there that I met. That's why I'm sorry it isn't distributed in Washington where it's needed, but the trouble is if you do get a book like that uh, into, into Washington, uh, uh, they, the ones that need it won't read it. Yes, the humanists are ready to retail any kind of lie with regard to Catholics and Protestants. Mm -hmm. And Catholics and Protestants are ready to believe anything bad about each other. Yes, indeed. <laughs> so we have a situation where the Christians are the losers. That's right. This is a matter of Christianity being asunder mm -hmm. and the advantage taken of this. Now let me go back to the, to the black legend or the Hispanophobic complex again. The Russians, since 1917, have been following this very carefully. They've been in Central America for a long, long time. In fact, they were, they were even said to have had something to do with the uh, execution of uh, Sandino himself. Mm -hmm. yet, he's, yet, yet his name is a term for the murder. Yes. But uh, there, there, are two, there are two lines that the uh, uh, any propagandist against don't think the Russians have been the only ones we've had the English and the French as propagandists against us too in Latin America in an earlier day maybe even still in many cases but they follow that line of the Hispanophobic complex the, the communists especially because this also involves race there's a there's a kind of a for example Indian Mexico which uh, who's very nationhood depends on a kind of racism built on Hispanophobia or the black legend. Mm -hmm. And anybody operating against the United States and Mexico, all they have to do is take that one. Of course, Mexicans are ready to, and Latin America is generally ready to blame Spain and the United States for anything rather than themselves, as some, I think Otto pointed out a while ago. Mm -hmm. But uh, to go right down the line of the uh, revolution in Mexico in the 1920s and 30s, I used to see professors, the desks in the 1930s piled high with all the stuff out of the Russian Revolution. And of course, the Latin America Yankee phobia, which is the other side of the coin of our Hispanophobia, or Nordic Hispanophobia, is just made to order to sunder Christendom itself in the Western, in the Western Hemisphere. I think the Soviets really caught the message when they lost Spain. They had Spain. They had Spain. They owned the government of Spain. Mm -hmm. It was a communist government. Including its money. <laughs> Everything. They got the gold. They sent the gold to Moscow. Mm -hmm. They took the, plant, the, the estates. They outlawed the church and they began to kill the priests and the nuns and that started the rebellion. Yeah. All right. That taught Moscow that Christianity was Hispanic. Christianity. Very Hispanic. Sure. Hispanic Christianity. Hispanic Catholicism was a formidable force. It cost them Spain. 
So then they really concentrated upon working into to inroads into Christianity in Latin America. And now we have the liberation theology and oh, all yes. the rest. Oh, yes. You mentioned the Yankee phobia in Hispanic America. I'll throw in something extraneous which I ran across today. It was a letter by someone, a uh, Boston Irish uh, businessman who is in the South uh, a great deal of the time. And it infuriates him to be called a Yankee down there because he <laughs> said, I am Boston Irish. I hate the Yankees. <laughs> Well, you can imagine the Southerners in the United States and Latin America being called Yankees. <laughs> yes. I don't care about that at all. A friend of mine in New Zealand uh, was uh, in the South speaking to a group of uh, people in Mississippi. And innocently, he began his speech by uh, speaking to the audience as, You Yankees. <laughs> <laughs> That's about like uh, President Carter in Mexico talking about Montezuma's revenge. <laughs> famous case of, a, of not knowing anything about Latin America. And we sent, uh, we, we have sent <clears throat> so, so uh, such a great amount of personnel into Latin America who are, by their very backgrounds and nature, <clears throat> uh, anti-Catholic, uh, that this also has a bad effect, uh, it has had in the past, uh, and uh, probably not so much nowadays, but uh, certainly in an earlier day, there was this mm -hmm. abrasive, abrasiveness uh, in the relationship. But again, <coughs> the, the bigger picture is something else, and that is our superiority uh, complex with regard to them, that's true of Africa and place else too, to make a difference, but most any place and, and uh, the people in this country simply do not realize they have this complex well Venezuela in the 50's instituted 40's and 50's instituted or late 40's and 50's instituted an immigration policy they would pay the passage of any Spaniard or Italian mm -hmm. who would come to Venezuela as an immigrant and of course they uh, got great numbers especially from Italy because Italy at the end of World War II was devastated yeah. and there was opportunity in Latin America <clears throat> I remember at the end of the war World War II Italians standing in street corners in little knots all talking about America they meant South America they oh, didn't yeah. mean the United States mm -hmm. the United States didn't attract them but Latin America attracted them because of its Latin quality and I said why uh, why only those two countries why not immigrants from other countries as well, northern countries? They said, well, uh, the northerners will not intermarry. They live with our women, but they won't marry them. And the Italians and the Spaniards will. And we want to improve the quality of the race. Well, it is interesting how little is said about the fact that uh, Hispanic America has had a fairly sizable uh, Germanic element. Mm 
Uh, yes, in certain areas, yes. very particularly. Yes. Chile, especially. And, and um, this is not Nazi refugees. This goes back to the oh, beginning of the century. Oh, yes. How do you think those brewers in Mexico ever got started? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there, there were many Germans in Mexico, of course. Some of them came, came over in the 19th century on a sizable mm -hmm. scale. Well, you see all these strange mixtures of names, and in fact, all America is very similar. It has a frontier, it has Indians, it has uh, backwater areas. I remember in the streets of Caracas seeing an Indian walking and a squaw following behind, mm -hmm. behind him, straight as an arrow, both of them. Uh, and and uh, there are large areas of outlaws, of people using guns to acquire land and having range wars and all that sort of thing. The similarity is is even increasing because Protestantism is moving around Central America and Latin America. Mm -hmm. uh, Sao Paulo is one of the great cities of the world. Most Americans have never heard of it. They don't even know where it is. Tremendous cities all through Latin America proper, through South America. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, we have guerrilla war going on in Peru, in Colombia, and in various other countries of Latin America. It's becoming like the Balkans, mm -hmm. the powder keg of the Americas. Mm -hmm. And most Americans don't pay any attention to it because Don Rather isn't interested. Well, that's true, yeah. I can remember when uh, Walter Lippmann back in the days of the Kennedy uh, fiasco with regard to Latin America, uh, he decided to go down and take a look at Latin America. He'd been writing about, uh, he'd been writing for years and years by that time. In fact, he died of only about 10 years later, whatever it was. But he, he was astonished. He went back there and says, in my life, this is the first time that I have ever set foot in Latin America. And he was astonished. In all those years? Yeah. He made some comment like that. I believe I have it in the tree of mm -hmm. book somewhere. Mm -hmm. A comment of that sort. And the first uh, assistant secretary for Latin America we had, the six foot eight one that I mentioned. Yes. He didn't know Spanish or Portuguese. hadn't hadn't really been in Latin America. He'd been in our foreign service, but in Canada and Southeast Asia or someplace else. And uh, his wife was an Italian uh, contessa and so forth and so on. But he, Latin America, this is a this closed book to him charge of our policy. I'm very surprised that more people haven't come to this realization. Every so often you run a little notice of the availability of the tree of hate. And we have people, of course, who buy our books, listen to the tapes and so forth, who are very keen, mm -hmm. especially the young people that I yeah. have, very keen to find out what's really going on in the world and what's important and what isn't important and so forth. I think this, uh, I hope this will be a reminder to them. What are you working on now, Bill? Uh, well, I'm working uh, on uh, a long essay-type article on the United States and Latin America along some of the lines that I've mentioned here, but uh, naturally a little more concrete and a little more structured. Uh, and I'm doing a, uh, I'm, I'm doing a uh, article on uh, Isabel of Castile, uh -huh. Isabel I of Castile, 
partly because uh, there begins, uh, of course, there's the discovery of America. That's that commemoration is coming up in a few years, but there are a lot of other things happened in 1492 besides Columbus. Isabel and her husband Ferdinand defeated the Moslems. It was the first great anti-Moslem blow that had been struck for a long time, and it finished Moslem rule. And uh, uh, 1492 was the expulsion of the Jews, which a lot of people think was the beginning of the downfall of Spain, which isn't true at all. But she was applauded in Europe for this because finally she'd gotten around to a big problem. The others didn't have the problem. They'd expelled their Jews earlier, uh, for example. And uh, and then also the publication of the first really great grammar of any Romance tongue, the Castilian tongue, by a Renaissance scholar, Maybe 1492, and all those things, 1492, were very important. It was, uh, and she was the centerpiece of, the, of that particular year. Uh, of course, we know know Columbus, but that's about all. We don't know the other things and how important they were. She also reformed uh, the church in Spain before Luther. She began doing this, and Luther was just getting into swaddling clothes, I guess. A real reformation, the religious that's orders, and uh, I mean. Cleaning up the kind of thing that Luther later on was to was to complain about. It is interesting you refer to it the expulsion of the Jews. Mm-hmm. England did it. What well, was it? A couple of centuries so earlier. Fourteenth century. Fourteenth century. 14, century but somewhere. Uh, Thirteen hundred. Well, I can't remember the dates, yes. but it's around there somewhere. And Perhaps uh, yes, the Spanish are clobbered for it, but not the English. That's <laughs> part of the. Uh, unfairness of so many of the historians. Well, of course, they had a choice in Spain. They didn't have a choice in England. They were just all thrown out. Mm-hmm. They didn't get back legally until Cromwell, although, of course, they got back uh, mm-hmm. long before that. Jews could change over to Christianity, and they did in great numbers, some with sincerity. For example, well, I don't know about the sincerity in this case, but as soon as the edict of expulsion by Isabel was uh, known, the head rabbi of Castillo and his son uh, both uh, turned to Christianity, and uh, Ferdinand and Isabel became the godfathers, whatever the ones that stand by on the, those occasions, their sponsors uh, in entering Christianity. And very little is said about the expulsion of Germans. <laughs> or the they, t- they took quite an anti German uh, stance and went after even. Franciscan uh, monks as far afield as Mexico. Well, very little has been said about the expulsion of the Moors, mm-hmm. which took place later. Oh, oh yes, the expulsion of the Moors was That's treated as though uh, it's totally unimportant, not even. But to Europe, those two events, the expulsion of the Moslems, the defeat of the Moslems first, and their expulsion later, and the expulsion of the Jews were great blows in favor of Christianity, because in those days all Christianity was one Christianity. The Protestants uh, hadn't yet started their their. Well, that's true, and also it was a following of Old Testament teaching mm-hmm. that a house divided against itself could not stand, and that a nation that had two religions could not endure. The uh, whole question of 
the 500 years of interracial, interreligious regime in Spain uh, remains, in the end it collapsed. In the end it collapsed. And this is not what a modern scholar wants to see. He believes that this is possible. We're in the process of trying to prove, once again, whether or not it's possible. We have tremendous tensions. I just received in the uh, mail the other day a large color photograph of an enormous Buddhist temple here in California. And we know, of course, we've got this great uh, temple in Kentucky, Mm -hmm. uh, which another Asiatic religious group had put up. So we are going to be the uh, port of all souls, so to speak. Well, in England today, the Muslims far outnumber the Methodists. And uh, no one knows what their relationship is really to the Anglicans because everyone is technically an Anglican member of the Church of England. Mm -hmm. But they are growing rapidly. In this country, we had an answer that was uh, quite workable, and we've abandoned it. We said there can be no established church, but our uh, law structure is established on the Bible and on biblical law. And in terms of that, the Orthodox Jew and the Orthodox Christian were able to have a common part in the United States. And since a civil government is a system of laws and the law has a religious foundation, we began with the right solution to the problem that has long bedeviled Europe and the world. But in recent years, we've abandoned that. So we do have a crisis. We have a crisis because we're trying to substitute social science for that biblical foundation. For the cultural roots. And for the cultural roots. And social science is uh, not even a profession. It's not even a subject. It's a sub-subject. It's om- it comes close, in my opinion, to a series of cults. Psychology, etc., etc. Sociology, and so on. You can see, uh, I'm sorry, did I go ahead? Uh, uh, you can see, for example, what I meant when I mentioned the uh, grammar of Castilian. It became one of the great bases of Spanish empire and the spread of Christianity. Now, in the United States, there are quite a few people pretty active almost to injure that language with a kind of approach from all these other uh, languages and descendants of other languages coming in in this hodgepodge and we're, we're, we're even losing our English language in the colleges and universities anyway because well, our, the American language is in such dire such straits disarray. <laughs> such that the latest unexpurgated uh, unabridged dictionary mm-hmm. totally useless and now for international treaties we have to use the Oxford Dictionary we have no reference for the American language hmm. none Yes. Well, they have been very hostile to everything uh, Noah Webster did. Because Webster began with a Christian premise. 
and in the original edition he consistently went to the Bible for many many definitions and to a theological position so he gave a sharp clarity to the English language I was reading the other day on the fact that uh, language does represent culture so that when a culture declines language reflects that decline mm -hmm. and uh, although in Britain and the United States for example we speak what is ostensibly a common language the psychological differences are very great Indeed they are. for example all the variations in the meaning of the word go in American English take a few pages and the cultural difference is, is apparent, the author said, in the fact that in Britain men stand for Parliament. In the United States you run for Congress. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And uh, he went on to cite how we are basically uh, a nation of uh, post-adolescence because throughout most of our history until late in the last century the average age was 16 because of the high birth rate and the fact that people immigrants came over in their 20s as mm. young people leaving yes. the old country yes. and in the beginning of this century the average age was 25 in this country only since uh, World War One has the average age of Americans begun to climb but uh, our youthfulness affected our language and we still have that uh, post-adolescent uh, temper to our language and lingo yeah lingo is what the, what the, what the young young people in this country speak isn't English I don't think <laughs> I don't, I the language is getting less precise all the time yes, yes. And you notice that even on the radio, mispronunciations are becoming oh. common. And oh, I've, threatening, I've been threatening for the last several months to get a cheap camera and to take photographs of every misspelled sign that I see. <laughs> because I see them all over the place. Of course, there's one right across from your place, Rush, Sandy Loam. And the Loam is spelled L-O-M-E, which I'm very, I'm very fond of. <laughs> That's a good one. Well, we have about two minutes. Is there anything you'd like to say, uh, Phil, by well, way of conclusion? Well, I might just go back to this language business again in another sense. Uh, I'm a great believer in the importance of the Castilian tongue in the formation of the, the Spanish Empire, which is the first great global one, you see, as you see. But now, when I think of the decline of English, uh, I, I was leaning, kind of hoping, been hoping all this time that the English language, which is now number one in the Western world, uh, would be in a kind of alliance with Spanish, but that might, that might crummy up the Castilian. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much, Phil, and it's been a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you, Rush. I've enjoyed it very much. Well, thank you all for listening, and God bless you all. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by ChristRules.com.